1: Hello, welcome to the minefield. Where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Let Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Um, Scott, I, uh, <laughs> I've kind of run out of introductions for this show because <laughs> didn't you
2: say something the other week about this presidential campaign not being able to get any stranger it is, yeah, when we
1: this did sister, this? Sh- I mean, like I, I, I feel like I feel like every week I want to come on here. Not every week, because sometimes we dip out of the news cycle and we try to look bigger picture and so on. Mm. But <laughs> everywhere we go, where we are doing something new here, I feel like I'm saying, well, I mean, this one's extraordinary. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and then it gets trumped. Sorry, that wasn't an intended oh, pun. I didn't mean that. I would nice. never opt for nope. a pun that was that um, hackneyed. But okay. um, it just keeps happening. Mm. And so this week, I think we've seen something that is simultaneously um mind-blowing, but also deeply, deeply interesting on, on a lot of levels. And I'm referring, of course, to when the news broke, when Donald Trump announced to the world that he would tested positive for COVID-19, uh, which triggered all kinds of conspiracy theories immediately, by the way, which I think says a lot about where we are, but then I think raised a whole lot of ethical questions that um, mm-hmm. are probably worth us, even just as private citizens, um, thinking about and obviously us on the show discussing today. So where do you want to start with this? How do you want to frame it?
2: uh let's just say to begin with that i think the very fact that so many conspiracy theories were unleashed that's you know there's this wonderful line from one of the hebrew prophets that when one sows the wind one reaps the whirlwind i think when you trade in disinformation in deceit outright mendacity uh when something like this happens, it's only to be expected that when you've cultivated the ground in that way, this is the kind of crop that you get. Uh look, we 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 really could approach this from any number of different angles. Let me let me point out two things, and then let's just sort of take it from there. Let's just say that especially in a media age, so let's go from about say 1952 to the present. It's not unheard of for American presidents, if we just take American presidents as being sort of conspicuously uh, recognizable uh, global leaders, it's not unusual for American presidents to undergo profound health challenges while in office. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower, who really was the first president of the media age, uh, he had heart attacks while in office. Uh, Initially, he really wasn't sure what to do about that. He, of course, was also the great originator of political spin. I mean, you know, spin doctoring really did emerge from within the Eisenhower administration, uh, much sort of at the behest of his vice president, Richard Nixon. and We all know what happened with that. But it's it's interesting that the approach they took even for a spin-obsessed administration like the Eisenhower uh, administration, the approach that they took to the president's health crises was let the public know everything. As soon as you know it, Let them know it because the consequences of covering this kind of thing up are catastrophic on all sorts of different levels. The more interesting one for me, Walid, are the health problems that were associated with Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. He, of course, in 1981, there was an assassination attempt on his life. And then later in his presidency, uh, he was diagnosed with colon cancer. In both cases, uh, his advisors urged him to be completely upfront. Overtly explicit with everything. What's really interesting, not just about the assassination, but about his diagnosis with colon cancer, is that what was hoped was by being upfront about the president's condition, about his mortality, about his susceptibility to an ailment that doesn't just affect the president, that this would then lead to others to be more proactive about getting themselves tested for colon. And that is precisely what happened. There was a huge uptake in the following 18 months uh, following the president and his advisors and his f- treating physician being so upfront about the dangers of colon cancer.
1: There are, they're very different cases to this one, aren't they? Well,
2: well uh, in, in terms of their examples, yes, they are. But just no, think, But even called. the dynamics is my point. Yes, but just think, lead well, what could have been achieved had Donald Trump after being so willfully, mendaciously cavalier, about, after being so defiant, not just about mask wearing, but about the likelihood, of the effects, the dangers associated with coronavirus. Just imagine what could have been gained had he taken, say, a somewhat similar approach, either to Ronald Reagan or maybe even a similar approach to someone like Boris Johnson, who, you know, I really did play this one down. But look, even I've got it. Shouldn't this sort of double all of our resolve to take extra precautions. But instead, he's absorbed this into his own narcissistic narrative so that, you know, as we go to air Tuesday this week, leaving Walter Reed Medical Center, his parting tweet is, don't be afraid of COVID-19. So, I mean, I, I I find the missed opportunities here were a better man, a greater man, A more self reflective, a less self deceived man in that office. I find the missed opportunities here for some kind of genuine public good almost crushingly disappointing.
1: But but the reason I think you can't compare it to those other presidential ailments that you talk about is this is inherently politicized. Like, you know, a president getting colon cancer or having a heart attack doesn't occur in the context of a global pandemic of colon cancer or heart attacks in which um, that president's response has been called into question or um, where the president has a history of either trying to play down or failing to respond to that particular health ailment such that it's a dominant feature of the political moment in which they find themselves, right? Mm. This is a very unique set of circumstances. But I think it gives rise to a whole lot of questions. I mean, okay, Donald Trump's handling of it is one thing. We could talk about that forever. And I Mm. think the criticisms to be made of it are, are more or less limitless. Yes. What's more interesting, I think, is how we respond. I just think as that's people. Right. <laughs> mm. So I've been struck by the number of people I either have no, or I just sort of come across, you know, via various whatever it is, media, social media platforms, whatever, for whom this is a moment of excitement. Mm-hmm. Trump's got COVID. Now, firstly, there's. I think they're responding to what they perceive as a kind of delicious irony. Comeuppance, but, really. That, yeah, yeah, this sense of comeuppance. Yeah. Comeuppance is actually mm. the right way of, of putting it, right? I okay, think that's right. But <clears throat> what's interesting about it then is where, where it goes from there. So what do you want to happen to him? And I don't think it would be overstating it to say that there is a very significant number of people. It's hard to put a percentage on it because these things are always distorted when they come through the filter of your own networks or social media or whatever. But I don't know. Let's work with 20% of people as, as a figure. could be wildly wrong, but I think it's, you know, I'm going to put it roughly in that ballpark to illustrate that it's a significant number of people who are basically cheering him on to die. Mm. And I... It reveals a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> it reveals that everything is political with him. Yeah, that we are incapable of responding to him as a human being who might be in trouble. I agree. He is making that easy because he politicizes all of it, and then even in this situation, continues to politicize it and use it to his own to bolster his own narratives and so on, as you described. But nonetheless. It shows just how profoundly Donald Trump is an unhuman in our, yes. our reckoning. Yes. But then beyond that, it's also, I think, just politically, no. I mean, I, I think if if he were to die, it would be possibly the very worst outcome. I'm trying to imagine what that would unleash and the, all the conspiracy theories that it might unleash, all of the political chaos that that might unleash and then where that that would go. I'm not sure that people who are cheering that on and thinking it through, politically. Mm. But maybe that's the less interesting discussion. Maybe the more interesting discussion is the first point about what our response as a human being should be. Is it led by the politics? Is it led by the humanity of the situation? Or is there some other way of framing it that is a better way of understanding the best moral response to an event like this?
2: I think that's a really nice way of putting it. The reason, by the way, willy that I wanted to I guess open with the examples of both Eisenhower and Reagan, and you know, granted that COVID is politicized to a degree, that heart conditions and colon cancer, for instance, are not. They were both Republican presidents. Uh, um, it's hard to say. I think that Trump is a recognizably Republican president. So when you say that this that he has politicized this, I'm not entirely sure that that's right. I think what we are in fact seeing. Is that someone like Trump has made something like COVID, something like part of his own autobiography? He has he has so b- dragged these things into the universe of himself that the administration's response to COVID, and now his own fate at the hands of COVID, uh, these are not so much political as they are sort of wrapped up, almost absorbed within his own universe. And I think that, to a degree, is reflected. In the kind of responses, you're right, that have been sort of uh, expressed to some extent maliciously, I think, to some extent maybe even even viscerally, just a kind of knee jerk. I mean did any – I don't know many people that were crushed at news of his diagnosis. Mm. I have been surprised how many people – and let's let's maybe lay out the degrees of feeling. I think in the most extreme case is God, I wish it. I hope he dies. I hope this is fatal for him. But I, I think I, that really is the extreme response. And I Do think you think that it's that extreme, extreme
1: in the sense of being a small number of people? Because I don't.
2: Uh, I, sorry, I think it's extreme in its moral it. character. Right. It might be extreme, think, but widespread. I think it's shocking how widespread it is. And I think that says something about the imbrutement of our political conditions, that we have willfully embruted ourselves in an age of Trump thinking that it's a natural or proper or justifiable or politically responsible response to someone mm. like Trump. But, but I think that is the extreme response. And I think that can be and should be morally denounced. But beneath that, I think we have other responses like, I'm glad he's got it because it shows that nobody is, is invulnerable. Mm. Beyond that is something like, I hope the the conditions the symptoms are severe enough that he learns a lesson and that other people watching him learn a lesson. And then I think probably the penultimate step is probably something like I hope it's severe enough that he can't
1: continue or that it disrupts his re-election campaign. Hmm.
2: And I think I mean or, each, or, each...
1: or that it's severe enough that he can't emerge the other side and downplay the whole that's right phenomenon and just saying yeah
2: i think I, i i think each one of those believe it or not is morally problematic in its own way and to its own degree i i guess where i find the first two responses at least to some extent morally justifiable is that because trump associates sickness with weakness because he has so relentlessly downplayed coronavirus um, and I think something I don't know if you've read it, Willie, but something that came out in Bob Woodward's latest book on Trump yeah, rage yeah. is that he is a great subscriber to the school of the power of positive thinking, a la Norman Vincent Peale, mm-hmm. and said so what we might take as being outright mendacity and lies, he takes as being being so relentlessly positive that by the very power of one's relentless positivity, that it actually changes the material conditions surrounding oneself and in the world. So, Mm. I I mean, I I think that's probably delusional, but, but maybe that sort of explains a degree of his desire to be upbeat in the face of these things. So I think that maybe hoping that the symptoms are severe enough that he takes the condition seriously and recognizes maybe the vulnerability of others and then reflects that on to those who are his most strident supporters, I think there's a degree of justifiability maybe to that. It can be arguable. As soon as you get to he got it, he deserves it, serves him right, I think we're getting into incredibly morally problematic territory that reflects very badly on us.
1: Hmm. No? No, I think I agree with you. I'm just trying to imagine how someone who has that response might Respond, and I think that response might be, "But it's true." <laughs> like, well, well, yes. Like the response also could this. very well be. He's invited yes. this. Now that's right. That takes us into a form of victim blaming, etc.
2: Well, well, yes, but the response could also be uh, the greatest good for the greatest number. Are we going utilitarianism? If, oh. Yes, if, if if his suffering leads yeah, to yeah, yeah. his supporters taking it more seriously, then that is, yes. that is a good thing. Yeah,
1: and that's why I think certain outcomes it is fair not to be cheering on, even if they are personally good for him, because of the knock-on consequences they can have. I do think that is a reasonable way to approach it. Anyway, which, well, God, sorry, on, sorry which, 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 by the way, we've seen
2: from Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. I mean, his very chest-beating approach to COVID, mm. his recovery from it, and on the back of some fairly robust economic policies, trying to kind of lift up those who are most exposed to the virus. I mean, he has had a decent resurgence in the polls in the last three months. So, you know, there 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 are political, possibly moral downsides to a
1: full recovery where Trump can say, don't be scared of coronavirus. Yeah, where the condition – is mild all the way through. Um, You're listening to The Mind You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing now, but you can catch us anytime in the ABC Listen app and you can subscribe to our podcast where we just keep going uh, after the end of the show. So there's extra content. I would recommend that you subscribe. Scott. Our guest. It's... It's it's actually wonderful to have someone who's willing to think about
2: this so relentlessly morally instead of just allowing it all to be tinged by too much politics. Cressida Gawcrodger was a lecturer in ethics and philosophy at Oxford University, but to our great fortune, she's currently a senior public policy researcher at Where to Research in Melbourne. Cressida, thank you so much for joining us on the minefield.
0: Thanks so much for having me. So look, let's let, let's try to
2: Parse an element, I suppose, of our response, Uh, try to parse it out morally. Immanuel Kant made, I think, a very interesting and appropriate distinction between a certain contemptuous feeling that we might have towards someone that we regard as being contemptible in uh, in their behavior, in their approach to public policy, in their approach to public life, and then the act of expressing that contempt. Which Kant says by expressing it, in other words, not just feeling it, but by expressing it, you not just lower respect for that person, but you cast a kind of misanthropic pall over all of humanity where we come to believe the worst about people. Do you think there's a morally interesting difference to be made between feeling the worst towards someone like Donald Trump and then leaping online and expressing the worst for someone like Donald Trump?
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely do. I think that when you express something, kind of the nature of your thought changes as well. So one example is you might really dislike somebody who you work with, but if you keep that to yourself, that doesn't seem anything like as bad as if you go out and tell that person. That seems very cruel. Um, And if somebody never finds out that you don't like them, it might not hurt their feelings or make them feel uncomfortable working with you. So obviously expressing things can have a lot of negative consequences or potentially positive consequences. But I disagree with Kant um, that it necessarily uh, undermines the kind of moral value of humanity as a whole. I think that when you have these responses, even if going out and telling people how much you hope that Trump suffers might reflect something bad about you or have potentially bad consequences, it might uh, increase political divisions or uh, encourage people not to listen to the other side, um, that you can still, I think, be a good person even if you sometimes have bad thoughts or even if you sometimes do bad things. And then I don't think moral character is something that can be undermined completely just by uh, one <laughs> or a small number of uh, moral infringements.
2: See, I, I think this is, this is really interesting because – I mean I you know Kant is normally much more serious about the role that feeling plays in the integrity of the moral life which is why this particular allowance that he gives for contempt towards contemptuous figures feeling it I think is is interesting because what it reflects for Kant and I think this is really opposite given our situation what it reflects for Kant is when you view someone with Overmuch contempt, what that reflects is that you have already sacrificed your willingness to believe that this person is in fact fully human. I've been, I, I guess I've been struck over the last two years where fiction writers, for instance, that I otherwise really respect and quite enjoy have plunged headlong into a kind of willful dehumanization of figures that are probably more complex than we often give them credit for. So think of, say, Howard Jacobson's satirical novel Pussy about Donald Trump, about the sort of horrible young prince Fracacus, uh, um, who is sort of loathsome and dreadful, and you get to the end of it and you can't feel anything like, anything like a human regard for the person who it's obviously about, or even Ian McEwan's little novella Cockroach about uh, Boris Johnson, where Johnson is effectively... An insect dressed up you – know, it's a riff on Kafka's metamorphosis. I, I think even the, even the willingness to lend ourselves over to God, I hope Trump suffers. God, I hope he dies. He deserves it. That says something about our capacity, doesn't it, to, to, to give in to a kind of embrutment where we deny the fundamental humanity of these people. So even the feeling of it, I think, isn't really a good thing.
0: I mean, I would say, in the defense of people who are feeling this way in relation to Kant, Kant felt that uh, what it was to be a good person was very much tied to actions. So he didn't think that having warm feeling for your fellow human beings or being motivated by your love of another person was kind of sufficient for being a morally good person. And one of the reasons for that is because he thought you can have control over your actions, but you can't necessarily have control over your emotional responses. So somebody who can't be moved by their love of humanity could still act in a way that was kind of prescribed by duty that meant that humanity would benefit from their actions. And so I think if we're taking a Kantian approach, blaming someone for having a kind of strong moral, strong emotional response, um, a response of hatred or taking pleasure in something might kind of not be consistent with the way that he thinks you shouldn't be rewarded for having positive, you know, feelings of love or respect for other people as well. Um, However, I think that, you know, we also have a lot of evidence that shows that we actually have a lot more control over our emotional responses than Mm -hmm. Kant may have thought. And one of the ways in which I think this is relevant is think about when somebody says, you know, I want Trump to suffer, I want uh, Trump to die. Well, In some respects, what they might be thinking of is something that's really in the abstract. So they might not be ascribing humanity to Trump, but it might be that if they really reflected on it, if they imagined what it would be like to see this 74-year-old man struggling to breathe or choking on a respirator, that uh, this isn't actually something that they would really want. That the kind of suffering that you see see when you are face-to-face with somebody who's asking for your help, who's struggling, who's crying, that's that would I think create a different response in them. It might actually create a compassionate response.
1: It might, but so it might not.
0: It might not. I it, mean we especially do have a like,
1: case is what I mean. Yeah.
0: Well, I, yeah, I wonder about this, right? So like we've got all of these films where you have superheroes that fight the baddies and, you know, they'd be fine with kind of <laughs> killing the baddie in an explosion or something. But at the last minute, you know, the villain is about to fall off a building and the superhero cannot let them fall. You know, the superhero grabs his hand or, you know, tries to save somebody from a terrible fate. And I think that I, I have more kind of hope in the compassion of at least the people who I've seen post on uh, social media that uh, actually in this case, you know, they wouldn't they wouldn't want to deny the respirator to someone like Donald Trump or they wouldn't laugh in his face if they were actually there witnessing his suffering. What they mm-hmm. want is something I think a little bit more abstract.
1: Sure. And, and I, no doubt there's a range of responses that sort of fill that spectrum that you, you and Scott are talking about. But, but Scott – Scott's point remains, doesn't it? The fact that, do we both agree that there would be a sizable number of people that would be quite happy to see him suffer in that way?
0: Um, possibly. I'll agree for the sake of argument. Okay. So if,
1: if we, <laughs> thank you for that. If we agree with that, even if for the sake of argument, that does point to, what did you call it, Scott? An imbrutment? Mm. mm. Like that means that that has set in, doesn't it? Yes.
2: I think that's, a, and and sorry, the, abrupt, the imbrutment that has set in is then given the pull of a kind of self-righteousness. Yeah. So it becomes where, a moral where, imbrutment. That's right.
1: Yeah. And it, that, that observation's fair enough, isn't it, Cressida? I mean, it's kind of unavoidable.
0: Yeah. I mean, I certainly don't think that it's a good feature of one's character that you take pleasure in the suffering of another. And I think that if you're trying to justify that on moral grounds, then uh, you might be kind of missing what's problematic about it. So missing why it is that it's nasty or brutish uh, for you to kind of hope that somebody else suffers. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I agree on that level, definitely.
1: All right. There's a lot to pick up. Scott, are you a coiled spring here? Because we're about to run out of time with the radio show, so I'm just getting ready for the podcast.
2: So much. I'm ready.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This I've is
2: such a complicated... I, I, I cannot believe how complicated this I is. I don't
1: think I've heard your voice ever adopt that, quite, quite that tone. It's quite remarkable. Um, we are you. done for the radio portion of the show. Cressida, thank you, but hang around. We've got a lot more thank to hear you. from you. Cressida gork is a philosopher and ethicist. She's working as a uh, senior public policy researcher at Where To Research in Melbourne, our guest for this week's edition of The Mind We're done on the radio. We will continue on the podcast. We hope to see you there, and if not, here next week. Thank you so much, Cressida.
2: I, I think this is one of those wonderful conversations where the three of us are in remarkable degrees of agreement, which makes the little points of disagreement all the more morally <laughs> consequential. Um, mm-hmm. Let's uh, look. I, I, I'm I'm not a consequentialist. I think with Kant, I think actions are far more important than intentions. But I think in the face of a pandemic, I'm I'm not. While I'm not prepared to abandon certain moral principles in the face of what might be better for a large number of people, I think consequences here are nonetheless morally significant. So hopefully we can agree, the three of us can agree, that the extreme instance is he got it, serves him right, God I hope he dies, that that is I think both morally illicit – and ethically brutish in all sorts of ways that I don't think we would want to condone. And I think the very image, the imagination of seeing this normally ridiculously orange person in his normal skin color. It's actually been interesting to hear people say, God, Trump is so pale at the moment. No, that, that's just who he is. That is his natural skin color uh, deprived of the sort of the artificial appearance of sort of youth and orange robustness. Um, so I think the, the, the imagination of seeing this person actually in the state of debility, that really should, I think, warm the hearts or, or allow us to incline ourselves towards the humanity of this kind of preposterous, ridiculous person. But, but I think there's another scenario that bears really serious moral consequences and that is Trump has been admitted to Walter Reed Hospital. Uh, Tuesday this week, our time, he was discharged or discharged himself. And upon leaving hospital, says, we've got great treatment for COVID. Under the Trump administration, we've developed wonderful forms that can combat this virus. Don't be afraid of COVID-19. In some ways, this is, I think, morally catastrophic that he caught it but he caught it in a way that gives a degree of support to his own underlying narrative which is both of a kind of perpetual youth and vigor and that there's nothing to be afraid of
1: well yes that's a very premature assessment though we
2: should yeah, well y- yes 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 it is that, that that's exactly right but that is a that is a dreadful moral scenario because it gives a degree of support to the very people who have been themselves willfully cavalier in the face of this fire. So I'm wondering, Cressetta, can you help us think through the moral consequences of that outcome?
0: Yeah, well, so let, let me play devil's advocate for a sec. So um, most people hate hypocrisy, right? I'm actually on the fence about hypocrisy. I think if you're a hypocrite, you you say one thing and you do something else. So at least you're saying something right or you're doing something right, right? You're better than somebody who says the bad thing and does the bad thing. Um, but most people find hypocrisy really uh, morally objectionable and in this case, we've got something interesting. So let's imagine that Trump really believes that the best thing for America is to keep going under COVID. And then he thinks that if people die and they get sick, that those are unfortunate consequences, but that the consequences of shutting down all businesses and so on uh, outweigh the badness of people dying and getting sick. Um, if he really believes that, then the fact that he himself has experienced COVID and been sick, um, shouldn't necessarily change his view, right? So uh, one of the reasons for that is you might think, look, let's say that I believe that it is better to fund healthcare over something else like, uh, you know, local sports societies while – uh, funding is stretched, right? So if I can only fund one thing, I think in principle it's better to fund healthcare. But then my kid really gets into sport and they really want to play for the local sports team and there isn't any public funding for that. And I now know how wonderful it is to have sport in your life or in your child's life. Does that mean that I should give up on the idea that funding healthcare was more important than funding sports in this particular scenario? Well, presumably not. Presumably my motivation will be selfish. It won't be a laudable motivation. And in one sense, you might think, look, if Trump really believes that society will be better off if everybody goes about their business, they don't avoid shops and they don't avoid public spaces because that's going to undermine the economy and have detrimental effects beyond the effects of the virus, then the mere fact that he has experienced the virus Um, shouldn't lead him to have a different response, that it would be hypocritical or very self-centred for him to change its response. However, I think uh, you both agree, and I think I could add myself to this as agreeing that uh, it was the response in the first place that was incorrect, that the choice to risk people's lives and health and livelihoods um, in order to, you know, hopefully Boy, up a sinking economy uh, was not the right moral calculation in the first place. And if you think that, that it might not be relevant whether or not uh, he gets to see how bad the virus is. I mean, presumably he knew that it was pretty bad to begin with. It's not that he was kind of missing out on the facts.
1: He's kind of admitted that, hasn't he? Mm, Mm. mm, In secret. Yeah.
2: Well, well, well. Yes, 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 yes. He has, but I mean, you know, in the explanation given to Bob Woodward, it's because he believed that there was a kind of power in projecting an upbeat message. That it's mendacity, yes, but it's mendacity for what he believed to be a good purpose. He also didn't but want think, to inspire panic. Yes, uh, yeah. I, I, I think though, well and Cressida. The other issue here, though, is it's not just if. Trump made a – on some level, defensible calculation that it's better to allow the economy to keep going even if that comes at the risk of kind of vulnerable lives. It's not just that. It's also his willful disdain almost almost as a matter of kind of public policy, his willful disdain for mask wearing because of the extent to which that promotes or projects weakness on the part of the mask wearer. So I think it's not, it, it's not, it's not even simply, it's not even simply differing approaches to public policy. It's also the willful sacrifice of even the most, or the willful rejection of even the most basic precautionary measure because it offends a kind of politics as extension of the narcissistic self.
0: But do you think that, him getting sick now and reflecting on that means that he's got more of a moral obligation to embrace mask wearing? Or do you think he was always morally uh, obliged to embrace mask wearing? That this was such a simple thing that whether or not you'd been sick, that you should have adopted this as a policy because it it comes at a very little cost and uh, has a very great um, amount of good that it can do.
1: Yes, and he allowed that to be politicised. So, so he allowed wearing a mask or not to become effectively a Republican-Democrat issue. So,
0: and, and that all seems really bad. I guess the question is just, is it the case that the fact that he's gotten sick means that there's a greater requirement for him to change his policies, or should he have changed those policies anyway? I
1: would assi- Well, I, I think it's easy to argue that he should have changed his policies anyway, but that doesn't mean that he shouldn't now. So... I think the argument goes something like um, he, by virtue of having now suffered through this firsthand, his grasp on the reality and the severity of this has to be stronger than it was, that something he, that he might have understood intellectually or not understood, um, he simply has no way of not understanding now. And as a result of that, having come face-to-face with the reality of of this enemy, um, it becomes so disingenuous not to take even the smallest step. Right? It, it shows that there is simply no um, amount of evidence or even experience that can possibly turn him around on this. I think the argument would go something like that.
0: And isn't it interesting that the people who feel – often most upset by um, the policies that increase the spread of COVID uh, or also the ones who maybe should be more aware of what the effects of COVID are and yet are relishing um, those effects in the case of Donald Trump getting it. So if you think what you should be motivated by is something like compassion because you realise how bad COVID is and that's why we should be having lockdown, that's why we should be wearing a mask, then it's strange that you would also be more likely to be the kind of person who's taking pleasure in uh, the COVID suffering of somebody else, even if it yeah, is Donald Trump.
1: because you've attributed guilt in this case. So I think what's happening here, maybe this is the utilitarian point that Scott makes, right? is that if you see Donald Trump as the cause of so much suffering, then you start to cheer on the removal of that cause, right? Because even though he might be manifesting the very thing you are trying to eradicate, that is COVID-19 killing people. And by the way, we are beginning to talk as though it's killed him. <laughs> it <should> be <laughs> <clearer>. <laughs> We're being very um, premature and presumptuous with that. Um, but the, this becomes really a kind of more or less instrumentalist approach, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And can so I wonder. I say,
2: Walid? I'm I'm not making a utilitarian case. What I'm saying is that there there would be a great many people who would say that Donald Trump not being reelected for whatever reason would be an objective good, and mm-hmm. therefore, if this illness is what makes it possible for him not to be reelected, then him contracting the illness is itself an objective good. Yes. I'm, again, I'm not making that case, but I'm saying that would probably be the case. that that would be the moral vernacular yeah, in which that I case understand could so
1: be made. what we're saying then the distinction that we or, or you are drawing is between um, that which is motivated by a kind of moral rage and emotion at this person mm-hmm. and and seeks punishment for that person on the one hand and that which has a more instrumentalist logic which says, I'm really just interested in the best outcome here for everybody. And if the instrument of that happens to be that Donald Trump has to suffer um, through nobody else's fault or nobody else's design, then that is an outcome that we can cheer on. And then the question becomes, how moral is that feeling? How moral is that approach?
0: And I mean, I, I certainly think that there's a big difference between that and hoping for the suffering itself. So, um in a paper by Philippa Foote, where she first introduced the idea of the trolley problem, which I'm sure everyone's familiar with, mm. um, she talks about cases where uh, what you do has multiple effects, or what you can do has multiple effects. So it can have some good effects and some bad effects. One example she uses is if you increase the general education of the population, then that's correlated with an increase in the suicide rate. So you do something good, but you know that it's also going to have these bad effects. And um, she gives the example of pulling a lever so that a runaway trolley ends up hitting one person rather than a group of people, uh, which it would have hit had you not pulled the lever. And she says there's something special about this case, which is that the person who was on the tracks who would be hit by the trolley if you pulled the lever wasn't instrumental in saving the lives of these other people. Had that person been able to get off the tracks, you still would have pulled the lever. Whereas in the Donald Trump case, it seems like his death is instrumental in bringing about the kinds of results that you want, so political change. So if it was the case that you could get the political change without him dying, and him dying was an unfortunate side effect, it might feel more permissible to have the hope that you get the political change even if any had this unfortunate side effect. Whereas if what you're hoping for is the change and the only way to achieve that is the death or suffering of someone, then it might feel less permissible. So that's why it feels impermissible for you to push a fat man in front of the train because the train wouldn't stop unless that fat man had been hit by the train, where it does feel permissible to pull the lever because the person dying, if you pull the lever... Um, was an unfortunate side effect. It wasn't something that was kind of required for you to achieve the good.
1: So the logical extension of this argument takes you to all sorts of dark places, doesn't it? I mean, this is the philosophical basis on which you can justify something like torture, right? Mm, that's right.
0: Well, in this particular argument, there's a bit of a difference. So we want to be able to produce some good actions, even from... Uh, So we want to produce some good effects, even from actions that we know are going to have some bad effects. If we didn't act in any way that would have any bad effects, we'd do almost nothing. So we wouldn't be able to build new roads that help people access hospitals, for example, because when you build new roads, there's usually an increase in air pollution and there are health effects associated with that. Um, So we need some guidelines for how we can act in a way uh, that achieves good things, even if it permits some bad things. And one way in which you might draw want to draw the line um, is something which is called the doctrine of double effect. So the idea is that uh, doing an action that has bad effects might be permissible if the bad effects were an unfortunate side effect of your action versus if the bad effects were required to bring about your action. So um, in the case where... Uh, This is also from Foote's paper. So you're stuck in a cave, the cave is beginning to flood, and somebody who's much larger than you has tried to get out the only hole to safety, and they're now stuck. Um, If you need to blow that person up, basically, to escape the flooding water, then their death is instrumental in you bringing about the good effect. Yeah. Whereas if uh, you released the water in your um, cave, but unfortunately it was going to flood a different cave that had one person in it, that would be an unfortunate side effect. But their death wasn't required in you achieving, you know, you and your friends' escape from the cave.
1: Okay. So, so what I find really interesting about all of these sorts of scenarios is that they attribute a level of certainty to all of these calculations. Yeah, that's, I think that's right. That just if, if this happens, then that. Yes, which mm. is just never true in real life, right? Mm. So, or at least almost never true. And I think we could say, certainly we cannot declare it true in this case. So what about the role of doubt in all of this? Or the doubt that we perhaps should have that we don't? To be more concrete about it, if Donald Trump is somehow removed, then all of these problems become solved. All of this suffering becomes minimized well we don't know that we don't we actually don't know the consequences of what would happen in that sort of scenario so why and how can we be in any way comfortable cheering on a, a, a potentially terrible outcome for him um, without even being sure that it will deliver the good that we are hoping for
0: well I mean I I think that there might be two bits to this so there's the cheering on and then and then there's the actual outcome um and just as a a bit of a side point I don't think consequentialism says that you're a good person if you want consequentialist outcomes so the fact that you like something or don't like something consequentialists don't care about that mm. if you know your preferences don't actually cause effect cuz it has
1: no consequence yeah
0: cuz it has no consequences exactly um but I mean I think that it's true that you're going to have cases where you know for sure that a bad thing is going to happen, um, but you can't be sure that the good thing is going to happen. So you might think in those cases it's better to err on the side of the numbers um, and uh, avoid a genuinely terrible thing, um, you know, rather than try to increase your odds of good things. But you are, I mean, I think you are going to have cases where, um, you, it's just very hard to make those kinds of decisions. I mean, as soon as you bring statistics and numbers into it, things do become really complicated. So we have all of these problems in medical ethics, for example, where what we're dealing with are not certainties. They're all possibilities of different outcomes where we can't be sure. And in one sense, you might be thinking, well, I'm definitely sure that if Donald Trump dies, you know, or Donald Trump suffers, that that'll be really bad for him. But you might also think, well, you know maybe um if he dies he'll go to heaven and uh actually things will be much better for him than they were you know as this president who was angry all the time and struggling I mean, you right. can't know so that's a very sure different him.
1: narrative right <laughs>
0: like, i <laughs> but, think
1: you would have to believe that before you could use it
0: yeah i mean i think that the point is really that you know we don't have certainty in anything but i would be worried about um i would be worried about avoiding things just based on those number odds so like i i could do something that i know is going to harm somebody but harm somebody in a very small way where the outcomes could be a really really good you know set of outcomes um so uh i might you know shove somebody so that they knock other people out of the way of a moving car. It's true that it's possible that that car would have stopped in time, but the the damage of me having given someone just a little shove to reduce the risk of people being hit by a car by, you know, 50%, that seems like a, a fair payoff.
1: Yes. I think, I I think, think where this gets tricky people- here is the level mm-hmm. of complexity and unknowability is just so much higher. mm so So, we proceed with relatively cheap assumptions, basically about what certain events would mean. can I just um well, we we have to wrap I know it's written in red on, on <laughs>
2: our screen here the, there is at at the risk of incurring our producer's fury you already have yeah, i know there is <laughs> it's worth it <laughs> um uh, there is one issue here though that we we haven't really touched on I think is really apposite. If we just return to Kant for a second, this idea that the suffering of another person could lead to good benefits for a lot of other people that would fall under Kant's prescription of his absolute refusal of the idea that people should be used as means rather than as ends in themselves but let's let let's just say and i'm I'm completely with Kant on that obviously but let, let's just say that the benefit of Trump contracting a bad case of coronavirus is that it wakes him up to the reality of the situation that other people are in fact living through i don't i don't see that as really being a good argument because arguably he is not living in the same situation that everyone else is going through he's going to one of the most prestigious medical institutions in the united states he is receiving treatment that are not generally available to other people to some extent, we'd have to say that his particular experience of coronavirus is, in fact, so unlike what yeah, everybody else. Yeah, but if it's still it,
1: bad, then it makes the point, right?
2: Yes, yes, but but contrast this, I think, with Boris Johnson, who was extremely cavalier in his own political response. Remember his insistence about I think it's really important to keep shaking hands, and then he contracts it, but then he becomes a patient of the NHS, which is available to every british subject and that gives him i think a degree of realization of the seriousness of the situation but also the exposure of other people to this precisely by his experience of the nhs which he remember when he was discharged says not only is it the institution at the heart of british life but it's powered by love a lot of people took that cynically but actually took it quite Seriously, that he was exposed to a reality to which other people are also exposed. So I'm wondering if there – if that's not a way of thinking about this where the very fact that the U.S. president has to undergo an ordeal that is common to others, maybe it's not him becoming a means to a greater end. But maybe is there something that's morally serious about him being exposed to something in the way that Boris Johnson was both in the virus but also in the treatment that's available to others? him being exposed to, to something that's common that then maybe realizes the reality of the situation, both to him, but also to his most, to his most sort of virulent supporters. I think there is something morally licit there.
1: I don't know yeah. how to respond to this without <laughs> it taking up time. We don't have Scott. So I think I'm just going to have to take that as a comment, as they say in, <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, in the classics. Cressida, this has been great. We, um, Clearly could keep going forever. But thank you very I much. Know. For, thank
0: you so much for having
1: me. No, not at all. It's been uh, it's been our pleasure and our honour. Scott, thank you very much. Thank you. And look, I should say, if you want to
2: read more from Cressida, she's written a wonderful op-ed for ABC Religion Ethics. It's titled, Is it Wrong to Hope that Donald Trump Doesn't Recover from COVID-19? You can find it by going to ABC Religion Ethics. Just go to abc.net.au forward slash religion.